0: God, sometimes uh, we wonder why the things that are in the Bible made it into the Bible, and sometimes we struggle, um, but there is beauty in that struggle, and there is beauty in interpreting together, and there is beauty in knowing that your Spirit is always with us. So, uh, we pray this morning that your Spirit would be with us um, as we explore uh, our reading today from Luke. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, So, if you're like me, you maybe cringe a little bit when you hear the words of our reading this morning. At least the second part. The first part about faith and mustard seeds isn't so bad, Uh, but I'm talking about the one about slavery and uh, worthless servants and things like that. I'm guessing that those verses um, aren't the ones you'll be posting on Facebook anytime soon. I doubt there have been any Hallmark cards with them printed on the inside, and probably if your friend who you've been praying for for a long time comes to you and says, what's Jesus all about, you aren't going to say, well, Christianity is kind of like, it's like being a slave who does everything they're supposed to do, and then in the end, their master still calls them a worthless servant. We would probably opt instead for verses about God's unfailing love, about Christ's compassion, about reconciliation and restoration, about new creation, not about worthless slaves. We kind of had a slave theme a little bit. I brought up to Stacy that you know she should be happy that I told her she should you know do the Second Timothy reading and not the Luke reading, and she said I already did my slave uh, message a while back, so uh, we're getting that kind of a lot lately. Uh, but these verses. Force us to slow down as so many of Jesus' teachings do. They force us to wrestle with the text, to compare it with other scriptures, to listen for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Because surely there's more than meets the eye, right? Surely Jesus isn't like a slave owner who requires us to literally slave away all day, only to return home, make the meal. And then after the master has been wined and dined and sent to bed full and satisfied, then we can take care of ourselves. Jesus said after all that he came to serve and not to be served. The second and third century theologian, Origen of Alexandria, said that the Holy Spirit purposely puts challenging things in Scripture and makes us stumble over them. We intentionally trip up to make us think and to require us to invite the Spirit into our wrestling. I'm thinking now of Colin texted me some while I was in, I was in Switzerland, and he was texting me about some weird stuff he read in the Bible. Scripture uh, should not be an open freeway where we put on the cruise control, and we tune out, and we ignore the scenery that passes us by. Instead, scripture is like a winding canyon road that is beautiful and is scenic, but also is full of twists and turns and some scary drop-offs. It requires our full attention. Our reading today is just such a sharp turn and an abrupt edge. Together, we are going to hit the brakes, slow down, and explore what this troubling passage could be all about. Origin also reminds us that the very same Spirit who inspired Scripture is also the Spirit who is with us as we interpret. So hopefully we can take some comfort in that. But first and foremost, as we begin this process, we should take to heart what Paul said in our reading from 2 Timothy 1.12. But I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I have put my trust. That is to say, we, re- we should remember that we're talking about Jesus, who most of us, I'm guessing, are fairly fond of if we're here this morning. And so we should remember who is speaking and that it is the one in whom we have put our trust, Jesus Christ. So, with all that being said, all those caveats, let's jump in. In this passage, at, the first, at first glance anyways, Jesus seems to accept the institution of slavery which, while it's different than the kind of slavery that was practiced here in the United States from 1619 to 1865, was still nonetheless slavery. And he probably seems to us much too comfortable using it as a fitting metaphor for God's relationship to us. Much to our chagrin, this isn't the only time that Jesus uses slavery as a metaphor for our relationship to God just within the gospel of Luke he uses it in chapter 12 35 through 38 chapter 12 41 through 44 chapter 14 15 through 24 and chapter 16 verse 13 however the all important however if we look closer we'll see that while jesus does use this master slave metaphor the way that the divine master stans, the way of the divine master stands in stark contrast to what we would expect from human masters. In chapter 12, verses 35 through 38, the exact opposite of what happens in our reading takes place. In that reading, the master returns home and finds his faithful servants working hard, and he invites them to sit down, and he serves them. In chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, the master puts the faithful servant in charge of all of his possessions. In chapter 14, verses 15 through 24, the slave has the honor of going out to all the people who have been rejected by society, the crippled, the lame, the poor, and, and inviting them to the extravagant feast that the master has prepared. So the servant is the kind of messenger of good news. And the last passage that I mentioned in Luke, chapter 16, verse 13, is probably the most revealing. Jesus says, No slave can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate one, hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So in Jesus' understanding, we're always serving something or someone. And in that sense, we're always slaves. It's it's simply a matter of who we're serving. God, the ultimate good, the source of all life, or something contrary to God. Paul also seems to pick up on this idea that we are always serving one thing or another. And in Romans 6, 15 through 23, he says, We are either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. And he says, But thanks be to God that you, having been set free from sin, have become slaves to Righteousness. So both Paul and Jesus and the other, some other New Testament writers, as we'll see in a minute, seem to be looking around, picking up on a social reality that is prevalent to them, slavery, and they work with what they've got to make a point about the life of faith. And namely that slavery to God, which isn't really slavery, it's obedience, because we get to choose whether or not we're going to follow God or not. That this obedience to God is freedom, freedom from the powers of sin and death, which we would otherwise be enslaved to. I think 1 Peter 2.16 sums it up the best. As servants of God, live as free people. As servants of God, live as free people. But in case there's any doubt, we can find many, many verses that assure us that that life in Christ isn't slavery as we know it, but the opposite. It's true freedom. So, because it's all about, I think it's very important to compare scriptures when we come across a troubling one, I'm going to list some more, um, in which it becomes clear that God does not consider us worthless slaves. John 8.32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. John 15.15, 15, I do not call you slaves any lo- servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. Not worth the slaves, friends. Luke 4, 18-19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Romans eight fifteen, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery, to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Galatians 4.7, so you are no longer a slave, but a child. Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The slavery metaphor is not without problems. And if I'm honest, I would prefer that, we just, that Jesus and everyone else just steered clear of it. But we've got to work with what we got, and it's there. And as Origen encourages us to do, um, we need to slow up and think about it. We can see that while Jesus, Paul, and Peter, and others make use of this slavery metaphor, the God of whom they are speaking is not about the business of enslaving us, but about freeing us. Okay, so that's all well and good for those other passages, but that doesn't do a lot to explain this passage that we heard this morning, because it still seems just as problematic. The master seems like a jerk, right? Well, many of you know that I used to work in coffee most people assume that being a barista is what you do and you can't find any other job. Uh, but I wanted to be a barista when I was graduating from college. Uh, I actually got offered by my alma mater a job to be an admissions counselor with salary and benefits and I said, no, I wanna be a barista. <laughs> and um, I had to apply for like six months to get a job and I finally got hired and when I got hired, For the first three months, I couldn't even touch the espresso machine, and then I had to train for another three months before I could be trusted on the bar. Um, And the thing about it is that I had to be exact in everything, and I had to be consistent all the time. So every shot I pulled had to have the exact same amount of espresso in it, and uh, nowadays, you know, back in my day, we didn't have these machines, you hit a button and it doses it just right, we didn't have scales. I had to like hit the thing and then, you know, uh, use the paddle just right and then you turn it off. Like I still have it memorized the way that I would do it. And then you tap it three times, and you put it up, and you scrape it off and then you put it down and you tamp with the exact right amount of weight, the same every time. Your elbow needs to be at a 90 degree angle. I'm not joking, I have lost sleep stressing over this. And if I had to do milk, if it was a milk drink, you got to get just the right amount of air in before it gets too hot, so you get that nice smooth microfoam not too much, uh, not too dry, not too wet. And I had to get it within five degrees of the right temperature using only my hand on the pitcher. (sighs) So, if I messed up at any point during that, I had to start all over again. one summer, the internet, like the national barista championships were in Portland, and so we had a line from the counter to the back wall of coffee professionals, and I had to do all this, right? So, you know, appreciate your baristas. That's the, that's the point of this <laughs> sermon. Uh, so I had to do all those things to be a good barista. They were essential. Uh, you have to make drinks if you're going to be a barista. And yet, if all I did was make good drinks, if all I did was that stuff I explained to you, I still would not be a good barista. Uh, Because there's more to being a barista than just making the drinks, right? Um, Being a barista was about creating an experience for the customers. It was about making sure that they felt welcomed and cared for. It was about, in one word, hospitality. I didn't just need to know how to make a cappuccino. I needed to remember the regulars' names and remember where they worked and remember things about their family and ask them how their life was going. I remember people coming and talking about heavy stuff like divorces or whatever else might be going on in their life. You know how that is that people are, can be very open with the last people you expect, like your barber or your barista? Yeah, a little pastoral. Maybe that's where I got the itch. Um, So in order to be a good barista, I needed to do more than the bare minimum. You don't get good tips for simply making a drink. You might get a little bit of a tip for making a drink, but you don't get the big tips for that. You get big tips when you create the experience, when you go out of your way to make sure that the customer feels valued, and when you take the time to explain to them your pretentious menu that they're overwhelmed by. I think that Jesus is trying to say this morning uh, that a barista shouldn't expect a bunch of big applause and a big tip because they made a good drink, and neither should Christians for simply doing what they're supposed to do, which can be summed up most succinctly in the command to love God and love your neighbor, which admittedly is no easy task. Jesus is still saying that we have to walk the walk. We have to live lives worthy of Christ, just like a barista has to make a good cup of coffee. But if we think it's just about checking off a list of spiritual to-dos, then we're like slaves running from one task to the next, missing out on the abundant life of faith that God has for us. We've traded a life of fullness and joy for a life of legalism. Faith is more than going through the motions. It's about a total change of who we are. How we relate to the world, how we care for the least of these. It's about looking at that mulberry tree and saying, you, be uprooted and go be planted in the sea. It's about doing the impossible, about believing in the miraculous. I hope that we all knew from the beginning when we heard this passage that Jesus isn't telling us that we are worthless slaves. He's telling us how not to be worthless slaves because he doesn't want us to live lives as slaves to the law, slaves to our perceived obligations. And that's essentially what the whole letter uh, from Paul to the Galatians is about. God wants us to live as free people. Remember 1 Peter 2.16, as servants of God, live as free people. If our faith is reduced to simply doing what we have to do, then it won't free us. It'll just be an additional set of rules and obligations that we add to our already packed lives. Do we really think that that is what God wants for us? Or does God want an experience? Does God want us, in the words of Paul from our reading from 2 Timothy this morning, to have a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline? Yes. That's what God wants. I'm just going to give the answer away. God wants us to live as free people who freely choose the good, who freely live lives of love and power and self-discipline. Faith is not slavery, but freedom. And the good news, Jesus says, is that you don't even need all that much faith. You just need a little faith, like a mustard seed's worth. And it will take root and grow and spread like a plant. It doesn't really come through in our English translation, but in the Greek, the implications of this, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed line, is that the disciples do have that much already. Like, if I said to you all this morning, if you're here this morning, you would know the answer is obviously yes, I am here this morning, right? That's how Jesus says, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, the disciples are going, well, yeah, we have that much, right? We left our homes, we left our jobs, like... We have that much faith, right? This isn't like a, like, you're so worthless, you don't even have a mustard seed's worth. Jesus is saying, you have enough faith already. The passage began with the disciples saying, increase our faith, and Jesus says, you already have enough. They are on the right path. Just let the faith take root. Don't get all bogged down by the rules you think you have to follow. Let the Spirit work. And this is what Jesus says to us as well. Don't live like slaves required to follow the laws of God out of obligation. Live as free people, people of faith, people who, out of the liberty found in Jesus Christ, love God and love their neighbors. Amen.